Have you ever been on a sightseeing tour? I have to admit, I haven't. But when I imagine sightseeing tours, I imagine that the tour guide takes you around all that chosen destination and it's their delight to point out the different objects, the different locations, the different points of interest. I assume that's what they do. Well, this morning we're going on a little tour with Jesus. The second half of Luke chapter 8 has us visiting four different groups of people in three different locations, all four stories intersecting. And it's my delight today to be your tour guide, hopefully drawing your attention to the elements of the stories which are most important and most interesting to us. And the stories begin, if you want to open your Bibles, Luke chapter 8, verse 22. The story begins with a really familiar scene. A story, no doubt, you've heard if you ever went to Sunday school. It's a story that begins with Jesus on a boat with his merry band of disciples. And they're on that boat because Jesus has suggested that they should take a trip across the lake. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. The story begins with almost this idyllic scene, sereneness, softly, gently, quietly bobbing along across the water, with his great teacher laying down his head to rest. But a squall came down on the lake, a sudden thunderstorm erupted, so that the boat was being swamped and all on board were in great danger, from gently bobbing along to crashing waves, deafening pearls of thunder, and no doubt the rising cries and exclamations of the disciples. They decide to wake Jesus, who's still sleeping softly, and they cry out, Master, Master, we're going to drown. It's not idyllic anymore. It's tranquil no longer. Now it's all chaos swirling in every direction. Panic, fear, frenzy, no matter where you turn. And Jesus, now roused, now woken up, he rebukes the wind and the raging waters. He commands with force that they subside. And then all of a sudden, calm again. In an instant, quicker even than the storm arose, it's placid. There is peace. In this story, Jesus is with his closest friends, his hand-picked followers. And they encounter something that is terrifying, the terrifying capability of nature to rob us of life. They find themselves in the middle of a tempest. And Jesus brings them through safely into peace. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be tempted to cancel the trip at that point. I don't know if you've ever begun to set off somewhere and things have just gone wrong and you've decided to call it a day, but determination was never lacking in the life of Jesus. So on they sail to the other side of the lake, Jesus and his hand-picked followers. And they landed a place called Gerasenes. This is no longer the familiar Jewish territory that they've been living and walking and ministering in. This is a Gentile 
place, a non-Jewish region where the people's habits, where the people's rituals, where the people's ways of life are very different indeed to their own. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town nearby. It's a heck of a welcoming committee, isn't it? We might cross the street if we encounter a drunk in the middle of the day with all the shouting, with all the staggering, with all the unpredictability that that brings. But here, here Jesus is confronted by an individual who has for a long time worn no clothes, nor lived in a house. Instead, they've taken to living in the tombs amongst the dead. Do you know what the sight of Jesus, at his approach, that man let out a loud cry, not uncommon in his state, we imagine, and he falls at Jesus' feet and shouts out at the top of his lungs, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? See, the man wasn't in control. He hadn't heard stories of Jesus like the Roman centurion we were thinking of the last couple of weeks. Or the woman who came to Jesus in Simon's house in the chapter before. The man in this story, whose name we don't even found out, is being governed by a host of evil forces. Evil forces that have consumed his entire life. Who are on the verge of robbing him of his very humanity. They have forced him into this existence of rage, a world filled with fighting and shrieking. They forced him to fill the air around him with sounds of screaming and to terrify everyone who encounters him. So much so that he's had to go off and live amongst the grave in the dead. But Jesus doesn't want that for him. Just like Jesus didn't want his hand-picked crew to perish in the storm, he doesn't want this man to be oppressed, abused, burdened with such an experience of life. So he commands the demons to leave the man. And after a little bit of negotiation, they find their way into a nearby herd of pigs. And as if to really visually demonstrate to us and to everybody else involved the, the effect that these demons have on life, the pigs rush into the water and drown. Now you can imagine, can't you, that this was a heck of a scene. And with all the noise that accompanied the storm, so too noise would have accompanied this occasion. Whether it was the shrieking and the shouting of the man, whether it was the howling and the wailing of the pigs, just chaos and carnage, a heck of a scene. And when the, the herdsmen who were caring for the pigs saw everything that happened, when they heard everything that happened, they made a pretty sharp exit. It says in Luke that they ran off and reported everything in the town and the countryside. And such a fantastic story prompts all those people who are in the town and the countryside to come, to come out and to see what had happened. And what did they find? Well, they found a lake full of dead pigs, yeah, strange enough. But they found their neighbour, the one who was previously howling and outrageous and terrifying, they found this man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Like the raging storm that had been made so still, so this individual was before them. 
And that sounds like good news. Sounds like good news to me. I can't imagine that it sounds like anything but good news to you. But you'd be wrong. <laughs> because it says that the people who'd come from the town to see what was going on, they were more afraid at seeing this man in this calm and peaceful state than if they'd come and found him still utterly wrecked and ruined by the demons. All the people who'd come out asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. Not the man himself. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged Jesus to go with him out of the joy that he'd been restored. Perhaps he didn't want to go back to those people who clearly didn't care one single jot for him. But Jesus had other ideas. Jesus sent him back home to tell everyone how much God had done for him. And so story two is this. Jesus, with a man who has been overcome with some seriously disturbing demonic forces, whose very life is a turmoil and is barely recognisable as human, it finishes with him being restored to life. And at last, longing and knowing peace. Story three. Having been sent away by the general population on that side of the lake, they set sail once more across the waters, who, by the way, seem to be a lot more uh, under control and behaving themselves this way. When they pull up, they find that there's another crowd waiting for them. Surprise, surprise. And now, out of this crowd, out of this hustle and bustle and hubbub, a man emerges, an important man. Probably, given the, the space that's required to make his way to Jesus amongst all those people who are jostling for position. His name is Jairus. And his request to Jesus is to come to his house to heal his only daughter. That request rises above the sound of the requests of everyone else who is there to see Jesus, the yelling, the shouting, the fighting for attention. And Jesus accepts. Jesus begins to walk with Jairus and his household and Jesus and his followers. They begin to make their way through the surge of people. But that's not actually the third story. We'll come to Jairus and, and his family and his daughter in a moment. But the third story happens on the way to his house. Because on the way to Jairus' house, there's an interruption. Now, picture this scene, okay? With every two steps forward that they're making, they're, they're being pushed one step back. Progress is slow. People are struggling to maintain their balance amongst the sea of attention that's being directed Jesus' way. When all of a sudden, Jesus stops driving forward and stands still. He stops dead in his tracks. He pauses and he asks the question, who touched me? Who touched you? Who touched you? Are you mad, my lord? Peter responds, people are crowding and pressing against you from every angle. Who touched you? We all touched you. No, says Jesus. Somebody touched me very deliberately. Someone touched me, I know, because power has gone out of me. 
when I imagine this scene, I imagine that when Jesus speaks, all around become still. All of a sudden, everyone is hushed. And rather than jostling and shouting and speaking, now it's a sea of gazes and glances being exchanged as people look at one another. Was it you? Was it you? Was it you? And in the middle of all this, a woman, knowing that in a moment she'll be recognised as the one who shouldn't be there, shouldn't be as close to the others, let alone touching other people as she is, she steps forward. She sees that she could not go unnoticed. And it says that with trembling, she falls at Jesus' feet. With everyone gathered round, breath held, she shares her story. She's a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. No matter what doctor she visited, no matter how much money she spent, no treatment, no cure could be found. And yet she knew, simply touching the very edge of Jesus' cloak would make her well again. And it had. In an instant, it had. Now, in the midst of all the noises of the crowd, there was, for her, a greater commotion. She could feel the searing, hot gazes of her neighbours burrowing into her. Her very presence, you see, there was putting them all at risk. Under, under the old ceremonial laws, her bleeding meant that she couldn't come within two metres of anyone else. I know the feeling of that at the moment. She'd risked it all to come out into the crowd in order to find healing. What would Jesus say? They all knew now that she'd stepped out of line. But what would Jesus say? Why had he stopped? Why had he called her out? Why had he made this attempted private secret thing into a big public thing? Was she going to be rejected by him as well as everyone else who lived in her town? I can imagine her heartbeat thumping, loud in her ears. I can imagine the sound of her own panicked breathing, breathing deafening her amongst the silence that had fallen. Jesus speaks once more and he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in peace. I can imagine too that wave of relief that must have washed over her in that moment. Not only had Jesus dealt with her disease, not only that, but Jesus had declared her clean. Jesus had declared her acceptable in the presence of everyone. He was sending her away with the end of all her worries. He was sending her away at last with peace. That's story number three. The story of Jesus and this unnamed woman, a woman whose life has been ravaged by disease and finishes just like the two before with this glorious peace. And now we can turn back to Jairus. Remember Jairus? He's the one who'd invited Jesus to come to his home through this crowd to heal his daughter. He'd been standing nervously patiently by waiting for this interruption to be over so that the, the rabbi could get on with the serious business of healing his daughter. You can imagine that he'd been anxiously wringing his hands. Well, 
He's not just keen, he's very keen for the encounter to draw to a close. And as it does, people from his own household come and approach him with some devastating news. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Imagination time again. I don't think it requires an awful lot of effort, does it? The colour just draining from his face. The knot tightening in his stomach. The crowd which is still jostling him around, just disappearing from existence because the thing that he was afraid of most in the world has come true. His dear darling daughter has died. There isn't the same noise as on the boat or with the demon-possessed man or even in the middle of this crown because it's all it's all gone but there's a storm all right there's a storm which isn't just subduing the boat it has wrecked it it has smashed it to pieces and now Jairus is alone out there in the middle of the water but as this has been going on Jesus's gaze has been fixed on Jairus after a moment, Jairus hears Jesus speak. Don't be afraid. Just believe. She will be healed. Now, I've heard stories before of people who have been promised healing, of people who have been promised restoration, and it gives them hope for a small amount of time, a short amount of time, but in the end, when the cruelty when the cruel, inevitable um, thing happens, that hope turns to despair beyond despair. The promise seems to weigh on them like an even greater weight, and it can crush people. I've seen it crush people. To think that Jesus here is speaking to a man who has just lost his only daughter, and he says, don't be afraid, she will be healed. Lord, you better be confident in what you're saying. There are no further delays. They make their way, they arrive at Jairus' home and the air is thick with the sound of weeping and wailing and mourning. The sounds of pipes being played in lament for this lost little girl. This isn't a private moment for parents to grieve but a very public, a very loud collective anguish at this tragedy. What's all this noise? Jesus asks. The little girl isn't dead, he says. She's just sleeping. The sound of their cries, their weeping, their wailing, their mourning are replaced with a sound of laughter, mocking Jesus. See, they knew that she was dead. But Jesus and a small select group, including the parents, make their way into the little girl's room where she's been laid down. And Jesus reaches out and touches her. Just like the woman had reached out and touched Jesus, he deliberately reaches out and touches her. He takes her by the hand and he says, My child, get up. Do you know, amazingly, her spirit returned and immediately she got up. And she ate. And her parents, overjoyed, no doubt, astonished, certainly, not a whisper from the wake below could penetrate this new world that they lived in where their daughter was once more alive. 
Can you imagine that peace that flooded over them came into their existence when their daughter once again drew breath? Jesus and his closest, overcome by the thrashing and the crashing uh, of nature, then brought to peace. This Gentile man, overcome by the powers of the enemy ruining his life, but brought to peace. The woman, weighed down by years and years of suffering and separation, with no end in sight, restored, sent away with peace. Jairus and his wife, mourning the death of their precious little daughter, received the greatest news parents in their circumstance could ever receive and are filled with peace once more. And so, as your tour guide this morning, through those stories, through those places and people, I want to ask the question, so what? They're four remarkable stories, four remarkable miracles, but so what? Who cares? Why is any of that of interest to us? Well, I'm going to point out just two things. Two things that make these stories so interesting and so important. And two things that revolve around the eventual answer that no matter who we are or what we are facing, Jesus is the one who comes and brings peace. Think of the mix of people that were involved in those stories. You see, there is no one, there is no right sort of person in these stories. They are as diverse as you could possibly hope to find. They include people who are known to Jesus and to whom Jesus is known. They are people who are unknown to Jesus and who realistically don't know anything about Jesus. There are men, there are women, there are Jews, there are Gentiles, there are, there are those who are respectable, with a high social standing. There are those who are despised and cast out and disregarded. There are young, there are old. There are those who have friends and family who are interceding for them, who are caring for them, who are supporting them. And there are those who are apparently utterly on their own with no one to show concern or compassion at all. That's a heck of a mix of people to find in just four short stories and they serve to illustrate to us don't they that Jesus really is it's a very churchy sounding expression but he really is Lord of all of all sorts of people of all types of people of all people Jesus is Lord the, the, the king that we've been introduced to in Luke's gospel wants to have in his kingdom every conceivable sort of person. Now I think it's fair to say that we live in a day and age that we, we have in our mind's eye a religious type. The sort of person that you expect to, to attend church and, and chapel. The kinds of individuals or couples that when, when you see them dressed in their Sunday best and they're heading out the door with their Bible or their hymn book under their arm, you say, ah, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. They're kind of the God squad. They're, they're religious types. And if we have that category in our minds, then I guess it makes sense that we have other categories as well of people who, 
who shouldn't or people who wouldn't fit into a faith context. They probably dress differently. They probably speak differently. They probably have different backgrounds and hopes and dreams and aspirations. But I think these stories, connected as they are, of these diverse people encountering Jesus, they show us this, don't they? They help us to see that Jesus is Lord of all. That in this world there isn't a type, that in this world there isn't a group which make Jesus and his power and his authority and his kindness and his compassion and his love any more expected or probable. I wonder which category you'd put yourself into, the religious expected type or those that you'd never dream in a million years could or would or have anything to do with Jesus or that he would have anything to do with. I think this is an especially interesting and poignant point if you're in that second group. I wonder if you think that Jesus wants to have anything to do with you. After all, you're surveying yourself and you really don't think that you fit the bill. You weren't hand-picked like his disciples to follow him. You aren't already a good way down the road like Jairus, taking on significant responsibilities in that worshipping community. Perhaps you find yourself in that place, in that group, thinking you're not the sort of person that has got anything to do with Jesus or that Jesus would have anything to do with. I hope that you can listen to those stories, see those people who are involved and recognise that yes, Jesus is Lord of all and that means even you. I hope that you can see that even you can come to Jesus to find peace. Perhaps, let me just say for a moment, you do find yourself in that other group, the religious group. You're already a believer. Yes, I'm the sort of person I know and I expect. Jesus to to know and to interact and to work with and to love and to all of these things. You've been a believer for some time and you rub shoulders with other believers and increasingly the people who are around you all look very much the same. You talk the same, you, you walk the same, you dress the same because you've been coming to the same well to drink for years and years and years and years. Can I just say to you, you need to see in these stories and recognise in your own life that Jesus isn't any more yours, your Lord, because of those things. He's not any more interested in you because you're that kind of person. I hope you see in these stories that he is Lord of all, of all people. But he's not simply Lord of all people, is he? These stories show us that he's Lord of all situations too. Did you notice the diversity in the stories? It wasn't just this monotone, monotonous problem that they encountered. The problems were all vastly different too. The confusion, the sadness, the terror was being introduced into these different lives in different ways. The disciples faced the chaotic forces of creation. The man faced the, the dreadful forces of the demonic darkness. The woman faced the shocking forces of sickness and Jairus and his wife faced the menacing force of mortality. Creation and nature 
demons and darkness, sickness and disease, death. But in each and every circumstance, Jesus was the one in charge. Jesus was the one who overcame each and every one of their enemies. And it wasn't a closely fought battle. Did you notice that as well? It was with a word. It was with a simple touch. In each and every battle, that would, that was totally overwhelming the person involved. Jesus was able, Jesus was willing to come in and to rule. To me, this brings to mind the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. When he put it like this, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ, that great Lord of all? What will put us outside the scope of his love and his care? Shall trouble, shall hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's written, isn't it, that for your sake, Lord, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. I'm convinced, says Paul, that it's, it's not death or life or angels or demons, nor the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation. None of it will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think Paul recognised that Jesus was the Lord of all situations, of all problems. And so I say to you this morning, whoever you are, let me say this. Know that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the worry, no matter what the concern, no matter what the storm you are facing, literally or metaphorically, he is able, he is willing to bring peace. And that really is the final thing that ties these stories together and ties these stories together with us. All these diverse people in all these diverse situations, they came, they came to Jesus. Each of them came in their, their own imperfect ways, but they came. So let me say to you, don't stand off at a distance wondering what might be. Don't turn around and walk in the other direction, thinking that there's a better option elsewhere. However you are able to come, come to him. Jesus made this fantastic promise. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. What a promise. Don't we see in these stories that it is the delight it is the delight and the joy of the Lord of all. It is within the capabilities of the Lord of all to bring peace where chaos reigns. Do not delay, not even for a moment longer. Come to him as the disciples did, as the man did, as the woman did, as Jairus did. Come to him, whoever you are, and find your peace. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus is Lord of all. And that defies our expectations.
expectations, that defies our conventions. Lord, it takes courage. It takes guts. It takes faith to see that Jesus is that sort of Lord for others and in different situations and to call on his name for ourselves and in our own. I pray that you would give us each that courage, that boldness, that faith that is required in our storm to cry out to Jesus. Lord, I don't pray that peace will come because I am certain that when we call out to you, when we come to you, you do not drive us away. In Jesus, you bring us to perfect peace. And I thank you for that this morning. In his great and glorious name. Amen.